First off, does anybody remember this movie? Yes. yes. What's the movie? Karate Kid, the original Karate Kid with Daniel San and Mr. Miyagi, the bonsai plants and the, the wax on, wax off, paint up, paint down, all those kind of, all those moves. And then that final scene where, where Daniel, he's injured his leg. He's in this tournament, he's injured his leg and the, the, the bad guy, the baddie's coming at him and he does that whole weird leg thing, doesn't he? He's there and he, and, he, and, he, and he wins the match and he gets the girl and he wins the tournament and it's brilliant, it's a fantastic moment. I don't know if you're like me, but coming out of the... I went to see it at the cinema, this was kind of 1984, I guess. Um, I went to see it at the cinema and if you're like me, or when you've seen the movie... You come out of seeing the movie, you come out of the cinema, and the first thing you want to do is this. It's kind of, I can do this too. I can, you know, you want to imitate it. Um, there's so many kind of karate things in the movie, but that leg kick has become iconic. It's the, it's the move of a generation, I think. Um, I don't know about you, but there's something about these films, the karate films and, and the old kung fu films, that kind of brings this thing out in me, the, the, the film finishes and I want to start fighting. And me and my mates when we were at school, we used to emulate those films. We used to, we used to even try and do the, the English overdub, the, I will kill you, kind of, kind of thing. <laughs> no, come here, I will get you at all. Anyway, we try to do the voices and we're trying to do the moves and we're trying to do the kicks and everything. And then there's the famous, the Bruce Lee uh, kind of hand taunt that he does. Oh, you know, you've all seen it. I think Neo copies it in The Matrix. A number of those kung fu films reference a way. So in, in Karate Kid, the, the, the baddies dojo, Cobra Kai, that's never series, but the, the sensei of that dojo, he teaches them what he calls the way of the fist. Okay, there's the Bruce Lee film where he fights uh, Chuck Norris in this big East-West matchup at the end, and that's the film The Way of the Dragon. And then there's other films like The Way of the Master and The Way of Kung Fu. There's lots of references to The Way. And it's kind of like we spoke about last week with the Mandalorian series, where they say, uh, this is the way. All these references in in kind of society and in um, kind of entertainment that reference The Way. And what they're doing is they're saying, there's this kind of ideology that's a way, that's different way to other people. So they're saying, this is, this is a way, this is the way, this is my way, I did it my way. Um, but there's, there's, there's a way that they're trying to emphasize. And um, the original way, of course, was Jesus. We looked at that in week one of this series. He said, I am the way. I am the way. But then there's also the church, the early church. Did you know that before they were called Christians? We read it in the Bible. They were called the way. So we've got Jesus who's the way. We've got the church who were called the way. There's also this idea that we kind of follow a different way. We follow the way, which is kind of Jesus's teachings and Jesus's um, example. So there's kind of these references to the way. And that's what this series, The Way, is all about. And today's message, inspired by those kung fu films, kung fu films, I called the way of the way, the way of the way, the way of the way. I want to explore what it means for us to be the way. What things do we have to do as the way? 
And it's a question that's been on my mind a lot recently. And I think we need to get to grips with this. What does it mean in this day, in this age, in this time, in this place, in 21st century UK, what does it mean to follow the way of Jesus? What does it look like? How do we do it with, uh, with integrity? How do, we do, how do we follow Jesus' way? Well, the Western society has been built kind of on Judeo-Christian principles and values. It is. This country and the US and many other countries were built and the foundation of our laws and society and all the things that go on within society, they're built on what we call Judeo-Christian values, biblical values, if you like. But now, the message of the Bible is actually running counter to many of the message of society. How can we do this? How can we be faithful Jesus followers? How do we live according to the principles and values that we find in the Bible, in Scripture, when to many people those same values and principles are narrow-minded or bigoted or judgmental? They see it as that. We know that the overarching message of Jesus is, is love. You know, Jesus came and he spent time on this earth and he said to his disciples, a new command I give you. He wasn't a, you've got these 600 plus commands, you know, the law of Moses, you've got all those, but I'm giving you an extra one. There's another one to add to that. He said, no, 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 a new command that kind of supersedes all these old, the Old Testament covenant. A new command I give you. And he's saying, if you can do this, then all those other commands, that will happen anyway. But he says, a new command I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And that's just great, isn't it? Simple. We can remember that. We don't have to remember all the things about gnats and hoopoo bats and all these other things. But a new command, love one another. What does love require of you? In every situation you find yourself, what's the most loving thing to do? It's easy. Or is it? Is it easy? Is it easy to do that? It's easy for us to remember it. But is it easy to do? And what does loving actually look like? Does loving people mean that I need to stay quiet and silently condone behaviors that the Bible teaches are wrong? Or does loving people mean that I have to use the Bible as a big stick to beat people with? What does loving people look like? Are we supposed to never challenge or correct people, keeping our mouths shut? Or are we supposed to preach hellfire and damnation to a world that is lost? What does loving look like? Does loving people mean that I have to now discard biblical truths? Or do I have to force them down people's throats? What does the way of love look like. Now as disciples we're called to imitate Jesus, aren't we? That's it. That's what a disciple means. We discipline ourselves and to imitate and take on board what our master, what the person we are disciples to, what he says. So we're called to imitate Jesus, just like me copying those kung fu moves, I guess. I need to know and understand the way of Jesus in order to know how to live the way of Jesus. And at the beginning of um, John's Gospel, uh, where's Daniel? There he is. He's always coming to me with John 1. But in, the, in chapter 1 of John, there's a, a little sentence tucked in there. 
John is talking about Jesus coming and he says, uh, he came from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's talking about Jesus. Jesus came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that statement, full of, it's not he was this kind of convenient balance between grace and truth. He kind of 50% of one, 50% of the other. No, no, no. He was full of grace and he was full of truth. When he was being gracious, he never relinquished truth. And when he was truthful, he never relinquished grace. Both and. And that's the way I think that we are supposed to live. Full of grace and truth. Um, have you ever seen a resin driveway? Yeah, you're just thinking these have gone left field there. But those, they look beautiful. They've got like, this uh, resin mix. And you can get different patterns and you can get different colors. And I got a guy in uh, a while back to quote us on getting a portion of my driveway done with this nice resin stuff. It was far too expensive, so we didn't do it. Um, but this resin driveway, it looks great and it lasts well. And it's this mixture of little stones and this kind of resin. And I think for this kind of metaphor, truth is like these stones. It's solid. It's, it's, it's strong. It gives the whole thing strength. And then grace is like the resin that encompasses it. And when, you put these, when they're mixing it, when they're laying your driveway, they mix it together. It's no longer two things anymore. It's just one thing. It's, it's stones and resin. It's grace and it's truth. And this is the road we need to walk on. This is what's going to give us strength and also pliability. Grace and truth. Never diminishing the truth and never withholding grace. Speaking the truth in love and remembering the place that God's grace has brought me from already. Can I just say, we're not called to be nice. That may be a, that may be a shock to some of you. We're not called to be nice. The world might tell us that that's what it means to be a Christian, to be nice. Because they would like that to be true. And if you're not being as nice, according to their definition of nice, then are you really being a Christian? The way they define niceness is agreeable. You do you, you let me do me. Never challenging. Definitely don't talk about sin. Nice means you accompany old ladies across the road. You kind of maybe do something in a soup kitchen. You go vegetarian or you're kind to animals. And maybe there are some of these traits that would, we would embody when we become Jesus followers. But niceness is not our goal. And it's definitely not our primary identity. Jesus, our model, he's our template. He wasn't nice. He wound people up all over the place, didn't he? He made them mad with the things he said and the things he did. He made people furious so much so they wanted to hurt him. They wanted to kill him. The Apostle Paul, if we look at his example, he wasn't nice. He caused riots with the things that he said and did. He wasn't nice. Jesus wasn't nice and he didn't come to make us nice. He was God and he came to make us new. Not nice, but new. He doesn't want to improve me. He doesn't want to kind of give me a haircut, cut a little bit here and a little bit there. He wants to totally transform me. The way of the way. It's not an easy way. It's really not. But it is the best way. And can I say also that the way 
of the way is the best chance for society. It's the best chance. Uh, it's, it, it holds the answers to society's questions all about identity. That's, that's so big at the moment, isn't it? Everybody's all about their identity. Who am I? I've got to be true to myself. Well, Jesus, can I say he holds the answer to the questions of our identity? In a society where everybody is desperate to find their true identity, desperate to satisfy the deepest longings of their heart, and we look, what, we do, what do we do when we look at that? We look to all sorts of things. We look to love. We look to love. If I just find the right person to be with, then I will know who I truly am. We look to our career. If I find the right job with the right boss and the right income level, then I will be truly happy. We look to pleasure, travel, or gadgets, or holidays, or stuff. We look to getting more and more knowledge. If I just know a little bit more, then I will be satisfied. Then I will find my identity. There's a, there's a whole book of the Bible uh, called Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, and it's King Solomon, who kind of went on in this experiment. He, he went on this, and he, to trial these things. I'm not gonna go into it now. Um, I may touch on it next week. Instead of King Solomon, I'm gonna uh, kind of give an example from another great and wise person and that is Bono. <laughs> There's a U2 song that sums this idea up perfectly. The verse says this, I have climbed highest mountains. I have run through the fields only to be with you. I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls only to be with you. And then that line, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. He goes on, I have kissed honey lips, felt the healing in her fingertips. It burned like fire, this burning desire. I have spoke with the tongues of angels. I have held the hand of a devil. It was warm in the night. I was cold as a stone. And then again, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And you know, we, people, the world, society, we try and find our identity in all sorts of ways, but it leaves, it comes up short. It leaves us wanting more. It leaves us wanting something different. And C.S. Lewis, who's a great kind of theologian, an atheist who turned Christian um, kind of earlier on in the last century, he wrote a great book called Mere Christianity. And in this book, he points out that there's this dilemma the things of this world don't satisfy. And he says, and because of that, there are three approaches that we can make. When we find out that the things of this world don't satisfy, there are three things. He said, first of all, there's the fool's way. He said, the fool's way is we can blame the thing itself. We can say, oh, it's just not the right person. It's just not the right love. If I replace this husband or this wife with a new one, a better model, then I will be truly satisfied. Or it's just not the right job. If I get a better job, and with more income, with a better boss, then I will be happy if I just get more knowledge. It's always the next, next thing. That's why it's the fool's way, because you're always going for the next thing, thinking that that's the thing that's going to bring you satisfaction and satisfy the longings in your heart. So that's the first way. He said the second way, the second approach to this dilemma is uh, the, what he called the disillusioned way. Kind of like Mick Jagger in the Rolling Stones, I can't get no satisfaction, but I try. And he says, what the disillusioned way is, you, you try uh, and, and you don't get it, you don't find yourself satisfied, and so you give up. You lay aside your dreams, you lay aside your hopes, you start living a smaller existence because you think, oh, I'll never be satisfied. I'll never find my identity. It's just not possible. 
And then he said there's a third way, the third approach, which he calls the Christian way. The Christian says, I am not here by chance. I am created. I am made in the image of God. And if there's a, if there's a desire that God has put in me, then he will have created a way for that desire to be satisfied. And if I'm not finding that satisfaction here in the world, then it means that the satisfaction must be from something outside of this world. This is the Christian way. He says, a baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. He said, a duck wants to swim. There's such a thing as water. I want to eat fries after a Sunday service. There's such a thing as a Wi-Fi connected air fryer. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, then watch last week's message. Okay. If I find in myself a desire, a longing which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is it was I was made for another world. Maybe earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And I think this is how I would like us to find our identity, in a way outside of this world. The last few lines of that U2 song, Bono sings this, You broke the bonds, you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame, you know I believe it. The way that C.S. Lewis puts it, he says, the more we can get what we call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. We find ourselves when we give ourselves over to him. It's a paradox. What did Jesus say? He said, whoever loses his life for my sake, what? We'll find it. You've got to lose yourself. You've got to stop trying to search in the wrong places. Lose your life. Give it up for me. And then you will find it. The solutions to the deepest questions of our identity are available in Jesus. Now the way of the way, as I said, is, is hard. But it's the right way. And it's the way that gives us the answers we're looking for if, if we stick to it. If we stick to the way. I remember, uh, how many years ago? 30, nearly 30 years ago, I was touring. I was a musician back then, and I was touring with a band. Actually, I'm still a musician, <laughs> I think. <laughs> but I, I used to do it full-time. I was touring with a band, and we were in Spain uh, for a while. And there was this one day when I was uh, with the guitarist, and we took a bus into town from our hotel. Um, and uh, we were going to come back on the bus, but then we noticed that there was a beach there on the town. And we thought, well, our hotel is also on a beach. So if that's the beach and that's the beach, there's got to be a connection from this beach to that beach. There's one coastline, right? We're not the other side of the country. So let's take a shortcut (laughs) by walking along the beach until we find our hotel. And so we started walking and it was very pleasant. It was warm and we were chatting and uh, I don't remember what we were chatting about, but we, we kind of got lost in ourselves. And eventually we didn't really notice that the beach had ended and we were suddenly kind of walking on rocks which is okay, we carried on. And then we didn't really notice that, actually, we're no longer walking our rocks, we're now kind of clambering over rocks. And then this carried on for maybe another 10 minutes, and then we found ourselves, actually, the rocks have gone, and we're now holding onto a cliff. <laughs> and we're kind of edging along this cliff path. 
And, and we, we said, what, what kind of happened here? We were just walking along the beach and now we're kind of on this cliff. And we thought, I'm not going back. It's just too long to go back. So we're just going to, maybe it's just around the next corner. And we kept going. And eventually we were just kind of on our tiptoes and fingertips holding on for dear life. And 50 foot below us was the rocks and the waves. And it was like, oh my goodness, what happened? Okay, yeah, now it's time to turn back. And we ended up kind of edging back, getting back to the rocks, getting back to the beach and, going, and getting back on the bus and going back to our hotel. Um, why am I telling you this story? It's if we start to move away from the teachings of Jesus, from the teachings of the Bible, we won't notice it at first. Maybe you just... It's just one thing. You know, oh, I'm not going to go with that. I'm going to choose a different truth. And it won't be a disaster. It will just be one thing. But what I found is, is you drift. The moment you let go of certain truths, it's, it builds and it builds. And suddenly you find yourself no longer on the way, but on a different way that you don't want to be on. And before you know it, You've moved further and further from God and you're no longer following the God of the way, but you're following a God of your own making because it's more comfortable maybe and more convenient. A watered down gospel that has lost its power. And then the only thing you can do in that point, you can't move on from there. You kind of have to go back from there. You've got to go back the way you've come. You know, we call it repentance. Repentance just means to turn around and go in the other direction. And that's kind of what we have to do. You can never go forward through wrong, through sin, and get to the right place. You've always got to turn around and go backwards. The long way is sometimes the short way. Because it's the only way. The book of Hebrews. I'm coming to the end there. The book of Hebrews has some great insight into this. It's written to a church at a time when they like us, were being persecuted and maybe facing serious challenges about their faith and for their beliefs. And this church, uh, I think probably a church in Rome, they're tempted to fall away, to, to move away from the faith. Not because they no longer believe, but because it's so hard. It's so hard to keep going. And the writer to the Hebrews for kind of 10 chapters encourages them. He's saying, keep going. Don't stop. And he starts to talk about Jesus in amazing terms. It's, a fan, it's my favorite book of the Bible, I've got to say. But in these fantastic, he says, Jesus is, is better he says, Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus' sacrifice is better than the old sacrificial system. Jesus' uh, death is better than all that. Jesus is, is the better high priest. He's, he offered a better sacrifice. He's the mediator of a better covenant. His sacrifice was once and for all, and he offers you forgiveness from your sins. And he's telling them, he's telling the church that Jesus is their hope. And throughout the whole book, the first 10 chapters, he's just going on and on saying, keep, keep going, don't pull back, don't give up, stay on the way. And then we come to a moment where the writer makes this statement. It's at the beginning of the book of 12. He says, therefore, okay, we've said this before. Remember what we have to do whenever we see a therefore, we have to find out what it's there for, right? You've got to say, okay, it's not just some random word. What he's doing, when, there, when there's a therefore in the Bible, it means it refers to what's just come before it. Now, what's just come before chapter 12 is, believe it or not, chapter 11. And chapter 11 is uh, the writer, he's, he's talking about faith. And he's saying, faith 
It's the substance of things we hope for, the evidence of things we can't see. And then he reels off all this list of great heroes of faith. He talks about Cain and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Samson and Gideon. And he goes on speaking about and, and Rahab, all these amazing heroes of faith. He's saying these people, they faced challenges, but they had faith. They didn't see the end, but they kept going they stayed on the way and then he says therefore since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses you've got all these people behind you around you spurring you on it's not just me the writer it's all these heroes of faith saying keep going don't stop I don't know if you've ever seen in the Olympics when they're doing the marathon the runners go out of the stadium they go and they're running around the city for like 25 miles and then there's this last bit where they come back in to the stadium for the last lap or two and the crowd erupts and suddenly these runners who have been dead on their feet for the last 20 miles all of a sudden there's this burst of energy because of all these people around them and that's what this image is he's using the imagery of a race he's saying all these people are cheering you on they're saying go 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 come on come on you can do it don't give up now keep going to the end since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he's speaking this to a struggling church. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. I want you to throw off everything that is slowing you down. Some of those things might be sin, but some of them are just things that you've taken on. Maybe habits. Maybe you've held on to hurt or anger. We talked about some of these things last week, unforgiveness. These things are hindering you. I don't know if you've ever seen a weights vest, a weight vest. It's like runners use it when they're training and they, they get this vest and they put it on and they, there's all these pockets in it and you can fill it with weights in order to train with more weight. So you can add 20, I don't know why anybody would do that, but people do do it, okay, I'm assured. Um, and so you can add these weights. And he's saying, no, 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 strip everything off. Unforgiveness, take it out. Hurt, old hurt, take it out. That thing you're holding against your teacher back in seventh grade, take it out. All these things that are hindering you and slowing you down, take it out. That, that habit you've got, that sin in your life that maybe nobody knows about, it's time to strip it away so you can keep going on the way. Don't stop. Keep going. The Apostle Paul writing, it's right at the very end of his life, he's writing from prison and he writes to his protege uh, Timothy who is leading, I think it's the church in Ephesus. And he writes to him and he paints a stark picture about what life will be like in the last days. And as I was reading this a couple of weeks ago, I just thought, man, this feels awfully familiar. So Paul's writing this, he says, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, Boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And I read that and I thought, wow, gosh, so many of these things are tied up actually with our identity. Lovers of themselves, boastful. Abusive, without self-control, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of, of God, of, of good. 
The identity narrative, be true to yourself, feel good about yourself. Do you know that last year, the world took 1.4 trillion photos, according to Google, and 20 billion of those were selfies? In the UK, they said that more than five, we average more than 500 selfies a year, each person. Man, that's a lot. I only took three or four last year. I don't know how many you're taking. It's bumping up the average. Lovers of, lovers of themselves, lovers of money. I saw the uh, survey. It wasn't a church or Christian survey, but this survey said that uh, um, 50% of people in this survey said that money and work is the thing they think about the most. And 70% Sorry, 77% of people said the thing they worry about most is money. You know, both are wrong. Both are idolatry. If, you, if you're somebody who has money, but you're always thinking about how you can make more of it, that's not a good place to be in. It's, I mean, I'm not decrying making money, but if, that's what you, if that takes over your brain, that's not good, that's idolatry. But at the same time, if you're somebody who feels like you don't have money, and you're always worried about it and thinking about it, that is also idolatry and that's not good either that's not following the way it's also not just describing the world outside the church what is it having a form of godliness but denying its power i think we see so many things inside the church where where they capitulate to the ideas and patterns of this world instead of being transformed by renewing of the mind and it means that they have a form of godliness it kind of looks right they look nice because that's what Christians are supposed to look like. But they've got no power because they're, they're not actually living the Jesus way. Um, Paul goes on in this, I'm not going to spend too much time, but the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Didn't we talk about this a couple of weeks ago? Confirmation bias. People want to hear what they want to hear, and so they gather around them. And with the internet now, you can. You can find out exactly what you want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Remember, Jesus isn't interested in making us nice. He wants to make us new. He wants to get rid of everything that is hindering us or tripping us up. Even some of the stuff that we actually like. If it's preventing us from running the race, it needs to go. Okay, back to our Hebrew scripture. This is just to finish. Uh, he says, let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. And then this statement, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Can I say this is the way of the way? Whatever's going on around us, whatever's going on behind us, whatever there's crowds of people cheering us on, and it's good to do that. We want to encourage one another as the church, as the way. It's good to do that. Whatever's going on, that noise it's brilliant, but we've got to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. This is why we always, every, pretty much every week we talk about it's important that we have a daily quiet time, a daily time where you spend time reading the Bible, praying. We've got, this is how you fix your eyes on Jesus and not get distracted by the noise around you. And this is also what communion does. Communion it, it helps us to encourage one another. It's a community thing. Communion, when we take the bread and the wine together, it, 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 it binds us together. But it also reminds us of what it's about. Fixing our eyes on him and what he did. 
And maybe we'll get called narrow-minded or judgmental or bigoted. Jesus was called much worse. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And I guess that's the end of my message right now. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Stay on the way. Stick to the truth. Stick to the truth. It's where you will best find your identity. This is what we remember when we take communion. His blood shed for our sins. His body given for us for our, for our healing. We take up our cross daily. and We lose our life for his sake. This is the way of the way. Amen. I'm done.